Amen. Thank you, Linda, for helping us to worship. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the very first book of the Bible, the very first verse. We're going to be spending Christmas this year in Genesis. We've been in the New Testament a good bit. Remember last spring, we preached through the Gospel of Mark, and then this fall, we've walked together through the Acts of the Apostles. And so we're going to spend some time in the Old Testament and see that the promises of God to his people begin all the way back at the very beginning in Genesis. So if you'll turn to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, I want to uh, make one more announcement uh, before we go forward. This one's not in your bullets. You heard the announcement that there'll be no uh, prayer night tonight. We'll do our monthly prayer time next week. No kids club tonight. No programs at the church tonight. But next Sunday morning at 9 a.m. right here in our sanctuary, we are going to do something we've done the last few years. We're going to gather here at 9 a.m. from 9 to 10 to listen to and to discuss Handel's Messiah. If you've done that with us before, you know it is very rich. Um, all the lyrics in Handel's Messiah come straight from the scripture, so it is a Sunday school or a Bible study as we study that together. And so there'll be a little bit of talk, but mostly listening. If we're going to do three Sundays, the 8th, the 15th, and the 22nd from 9 to 10, that's three hours. And most of that time is going to be music. So not as much talking. Come bring kids. We won't have a separate nursery or Sunday school for the kids. If they're old enough to read, bring them on. We'll have some pages for them to fill out with Handel's Messiah the next three weeks during the Sunday school hour from 9 to 10. A great way to worship and to prepare our hearts for worship together. Uh, as we gather here next Sunday at 9 a.m. But today we begin our sermon series for Christmas, Christmas in Genesis. I love the book of Genesis because it answers so many of those foundational questions that are often the cry of the human heart. Genesis has answers to those questions. Those questions like, where did all that we see come from? How did we get here? Why are things so broken and messed up in the world around me? Is there any hope for the brokenness to be fixed? What is our role in all of this? Do we have a purpose in this life? If so, what is our purpose? I want us to take a few moments today to answer those really big questions. And I want you to hear from God's word. And if you're a believer, to be reminded what God's word says about those questions. Because I want you to have confidence that God answers those and deals with those in his word. I also want you to use this time to be equipped to answer those questions. Because the culture around us, the people in your office, the people in your neighborhood, the people that you sat around the Thanksgiving table with, the people that you will be with at Christmas are asking these kinds of questions. And it's important that we are equipped to give an answer for the hope that we have. So let's spend some time asking and answering those questions from God's word. The question one, where did all this stuff come from? How did we get here? Genesis chapter one, verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let me pray for us as we come to God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Father, we cannot understand your word unless you open our ears, unless you open our eyes, unless you give us understanding. So I just want to ask you now that you would do that, 
that you would open our eyes and our ears, that you would open our hearts so that we could hear you speak to your people through your word. Please come and do that now. Please answer these questions that we have in our hearts. I pray that you would equip us to answer these questions in the culture around us. And Father, I ask that you'd be willing to do all this, even through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Where did all this stuff come from? How did we get here? Genesis 1-1 tells us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That God made all these things. And Genesis 1 is uh, is beautiful in its cadence and in its rhythm. There's this way that the story is told. You see, look in verse 3. There's this pattern that we see of and God said and and God saw. And we'll see that pattern as we walk through Genesis 1. Look at at, at verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. This rhythm, this cadence goes on through Genesis chapter 1. What one commentator called elevated prose. It's not quite poetry, but it's not quite regular prose either. Because it has this rhythm and this cadence to it. And we see over and over again that and God said, and it happens... And God saw that it was good. You see it in day two, where God separates the land from the sea. And then he sees in verse 10 that it's good. You see it on day three, where the land grows plants and um, all the different plants in the world. You think of botanists, people who devote their entire life to studying plants. God created them all in one day. What what power. What creativity he has. So many different kinds of plants. Seed-bearing plants. Plants that that don't bear seeds. The ones that bear fruit. Ones that don't bear fruit. You keep going. On day four, God creates the sun and the moon and the stars. And in verse 18, he sees all these things and he says that they are good. Again, people devote their lives to studying astronomy and the physics of the universe. God creates all those things in his power and in his creativity. Day five, he makes all the sea creatures, everything that lives in the sea, and all the birds that fly in the air. He makes them all. And in verse 21, he says they're very good. Day six, he makes all the creatures on the land. And in verse 25, he says that they are very good. So over and over again, he says and creates by the, by the power of his word. And then he sees that it is good. Then we get to Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28, and we get the answer to that question about us, right? What are we here for? Do we have a purpose in this life? If so, what is our purpose? And we see the answer to that as God creates humans in Genesis 1 and verse 26. Look what he says there. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule. If you have the ESV or the King James Version, it says, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. I'll get to verse 28 in a second. Let me just stop there and say that all humans have value because we are made in the image of God. 
This God that we've only been looking at for a few verses in his power that he can speak things into existence, in his creativity. In that God, we're made in his image, and we all have value and purpose because we're made in the image of God. Then God is more specific about that purpose in verse 28. Look what he says. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So God tells us what our purpose is. Some commentators have reduced this to multiplication and dominion, that we're to be fruitful and multiply. And what is it that we're fruitful and multiply? Images of God, right? We don't just have children, although that's part of it. It's not just physical reproduction, but it's also spiritual reproduction, that we create people and fill the earth with people who look more and more like Jesus, right? And that way, really, the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations really has its roots here in Genesis 1, in verse 28, that we're to multiply, and then we're to subdue the earth or to rule over it, to exercise this dominion, to rule whatever area of life God gives us in the way that God would rule, to his glory, right? So if God puts you in charge of your family, then you're supposed to rule there in a way that is glorifying to him. If he puts you in a job, You're supposed to do that job for his glory in the way that a follower of Jesus would do that job. If he puts you in a neighborhood, if he puts you in any kind of position as a student at school, we're to do those tasks and to rule those areas, have dominion over them in a way that is pleasing and glorifying to God. And that's what we were made for. That's what we were made to do. That's the job that he has given us to do. And in Genesis 1 and verse 31, after God has said six times, it's good, he saw it was good, he saw it was good. And in Genesis 1, 31, he says, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. God is pleased with his creation. Now that leads us to this second question we talked about. If God created all things good, then why are things so broken and messed up in the world that we live in? Why is there starvation and hatred and killing and death and disease and divorce and depression? Why do all things exist if God created all things good? Well, let's keep going in Genesis. We Read with me beginning in Genesis 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, you need to know at this point, up in chapter 2 and verse 16, God had said, you're free to eat from any tree of the garden except for this one. And if you eat of it, you will surely die. And so the serpents misquoted God. He said, did he really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Verse 2, the woman answers, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Verse 4, The serpent says, you will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Right there, remember in chapter 2, God said you will die, the serpent saying you will not surely die. Where I come from, folks say somebody ain't telling it like it is, right? Somebody is lying. 
And what Eve does here is interesting. It's subtle, but watch what happens. Look at verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Now, what does Eve do here? She has God saying, you will die. She has the serpent saying, you will not. And then she sets herself up as the judge. She's going to decide between them. And she kind of weighs the pros and the cons and looks at it and says, well, it does look desirable. And if it does give you wisdom, I'm going to decide to eat it. You see, she became her own judge. She became her own lawgiver. She became the one to decide what is right and what is wrong. She didn't allow God to rule over her. Adam doesn't allow God's word to stand. Now, listen, don't hear what I'm not saying, all right? God's word does not say that we don't use our brains, that we don't weigh the pros and cons of things. Because we do. That's why God gave us a brain and made us in his image and made us rational creatures, right? So if there is something that God has not explicitly spoken to in his word, then we need to use our brains to figure out what God would have us to do in a way that is consistent with his word. But listen to me now. If God has explicitly spoken to something... We don't have to weigh the pros and the cons. We we don't have to do a cost-benefit of analysis. If God has spoken to something, let God be right and all other men be liars, Paul says in Romans 3, down around verse 4. If God has spoken to something, he is right. And we should accept his word and what he says and his rule and reign over us. And when the man and the woman refuse to do that, when they will not live life as God designed it to be lived, you can just see the cascade downward. Shame enters the world as they realize they're naked and they cover themselves with food. They had been naked at the end of chapter 2 and they were not ashamed. Now they realize they're naked, they have shame, they cover themselves with fig leaves. Fear enters the world. As they hear the Lord God walking in the garden, and usually they had this unhindered relationship with him, now they're afraid. Blame enters the world. As God says, Adam, did you eat the fruit I told you not to eat? He says, the woman that you gave me, pointing fingers, right? And he asked the woman, she says, the serpent, he deceived me. So shame and fear and hiding and blame Pain enters the world as a result of God's curse. Enmity, hatred between people enters the world. Decay, death, all these things enter the world because humans did not live life as God designed life to be lived. That's where the brokenness has come from. Now let's do a little application there, all right? Because you're going to be around somebody in your office. You're going to be talking as you watch the kids play basketball or football. You're going to be around some people maybe at the Christmas table coming up. And there are people who point to the pain and suffering in the world and say there cannot be a good God who is all-powerful if these things are going on. Right? Just to give a personal example, at our table at Thanksgiving on Thursday, there was discussion of a high school student who had recently died of some rare form of cancer in Georgia, where my nieces go to school, and they were talking about that and lamenting that. And we see that kind of brokenness and often conclude, well, there must not be a God who is good, or else he would heal them, or maybe he's not all-powerful, but he can't be all-good and all-powerful if there's this pain and suffering that exists in the world. Well, think about what we've just seen in Genesis, right? 
The answer to that is this. We, we would say whatever the, the crisis is, whether it's disease or depression or divorce or, or death, the answer is the same. We say, no, 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 no. God created all things good. Remember, he said it seven times. God created all things good. And he was so creative in his creation, right? God created all things good, and things are broken and messed up. All that brokenness entered the world because we haven't lived life like God designed life to be lived. And that's where disease and decay and death first entered the world because of our refusal to live life like God designed it to be. Think about this illustration, Let's say I told you that these Hondas, you know, Honda as a manufacturer just doesn't make very good cars. Because I got this Honda CRV and it's just not running right. And then I go on to tell you that instead of putting unleaded gasoline in it, I've just started running the water hose into the tank because it's water's a lot cheaper. They charge me for water, they send me a bill for, it, but it's a lot cheaper than gasoline. All right? So I've just started filling the cart with gas. But Honda makes horrible cars because I've been putting this water in a car that was designed to run on gasoline. Now, what would you say to me? (laughs) You would say, look, you're not using the car the way it was designed to be used. That's not Honda's fault. They're not a bad manufacturer of cars. You haven't used the car the way they tell you in that manual to use it, right? That's the same thing that's going on. It's not that that God is evil or he's bad or he's not in control or he's not good. It's that we haven't lived life the way he tells us to in his manual. And as a result, things break down. Things come apart. Things come undone. And that's where the brokenness in our world comes from. That's why things around us are broken and messed up. Question number three. Is there any hope for things being made right? That's a great question to ask people. If they're just talking about brokenness, if they're just just say, well, what, what what hope do we have? You know, a cure for cancer. You know, people die of other things. People get cured from cancer and still die from other things. You know, what hope is there for the world? Asking people those questions are good, and there is hope that we have that God mentions right here in Genesis three, and I want to show you in verse fifteen. The Christmas message that is here in Genesis. Because there is hope. Look with me at Genesis 3 and verse 15. God is pronouncing a curse on the serpent, the one who deceived the man and the woman. And what does he say? Genesis 3 verse 15. God says, and I will put enmity, which means ill will or hatred, between you and the woman. Between your offspring, your translation may say between your seed and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now you may say, that's it? That's the Christmas promise? Doesn't sound too much like Christmas to me, right? Well, I will admit that it is cryptic, but let's walk through it together. What does it say? There is hope for us. Put it back up there for me. Yeah, there's hope for us because God says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring or your seed and hers. He will crush your head. He's going to do something to the one who led us into evil, and you will strike his heel. So this is saying that there will be a human, right, the offspring of the woman, some descendant of Eve, some seed of hers, and he will come, and he will do battle with evil, right? 
And at great cost to himself, the serpent is going to strike his heel. It's not good to get, you know, bitten by a snake, right? So at great cost to himself, you will strike his heel. He will crush your head. Now, some people look at this and say, well, now how do we know this isn't just talking about people and snakes are not going to like each other? Because I don't like snakes, right? Well, I don't really like snakes either. But I don't think that's what this is saying, You see, this word offspring is one of those that has an irregular plural, right? Seed or offspring. It's like deer. You say one deer or two deer. You can't really tell if it's plural by just looking at the word. But look at the pronouns. Not all mankind, but he, right? Masculine, singular, third person. He will crush your head. A certain person will crush your head, serpent, Satan, right? And you will strike his heel, So that's the Christmas promise, right? That there will be a human who at great cost to himself will deal a decisive blow, that he will crush the head of the serpent. So while he will be a human, he's a special kind of human because he has the power to win where Adam and Eve were defeated. And so in Genesis 3, in verse 15, we see the Christmas message. That God will send a special, powerful human to do battle with the forces of evil that led us astray. And that this champion will win over evil, thus benefiting all humanity. Christmas is the fulfillment of Genesis 3 and verse 15. Christmas means that there is hope for things being made right. That there is hope in the goodness and faithfulness of God and his provision for us of a champion. Our hope is not in ourselves. I loved the the prayer that Mark had. It's not in our own intellect. It's not in our being goodness. Our hope is in our champion. And the rest of biblical history, indeed the rest of human history, is the unfolding of this truth. You want to see that? Watch this. You ready? Here we go. The Bible in five minutes. Give me two minutes on the Old Testament and two of the New and throw a minute in there just to give me some grace, okay? Think about it. That is the message. If I've lost you, come back in right here, okay? Because that's the message of the Bible, that our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope is in this champion that God promised to send. Think about the Bible. What does it say? It starts in the Garden of Eden. God tells the man and the woman to follow this one rule, to take care of the garden, don't eat from this one tree, everything will be good. How does that turn out due to our sin and rebellion? It doesn't work. Our hope is not in our goodness. Our hope is not in our ability to keep the rules because we fail at that. So God writes down a set of laws, right? Lawyers love that. Let's write it down so it'll be clear and you obey the law. I'm holy, God says, and you will be holy. So God writes down the law and by obeying the law, everything will be good, right? How does that work? It doesn't, right? Because we fail to follow the law. And so our hope is not in our obedience or our faithfulness to the law, So God introduces the sacrificial system. That was Exodus, we're up to Leviticus now, right? God introduces the sacrificial system, and he says, okay, look, when you mess up, you can't follow the rules, do the sacrifices. Honor the priests, do what they tell you to do, everything will be good. How does that work? It doesn't work. The priests get corrupt. The people don't follow the priests. And we learn that our hope is not in our religious efforts, 
And so we get to the book of Judges. And so we'll have the strong people, the really good guys, and we'll make them judges to lead us. And we will let them enforce the right thing to do. And how does that work? (laughs) It's dreadful, right? The strongest do whatever is right in their own eyes. And there's anarchy. And it gets worse, and the spiral goes downward. And so then we say, okay, well, let's have a king, the tallest and the strongest and the most handsome and the best fighter. We'll put him in charge to hold those guys in line. How does that work? It doesn't. Kings go astray. They don't follow the law that God had given. And so our hope is not in government. Our hope is not in good leaders. And so God sends prophets. To remind the kings of what God says to do, right? We'll just have these prophets and they'll remind the kings so that way they can stay on the straight and narrow. That'll work, right? How does that turn out? It doesn't work. The kings ignore the prophets. There are false prophets who rise up. Sometimes the kings kill the prophets that are sent by God. It doesn't work. Now, what has just happened in our summary of the Old Testament? What's just happened? The Bible is telling us not to put our hope in humanity's goodness and following laws, in humanity's obedience or faithfulness, in humanity's religious efforts and priests, in humanity's strength and leadership and governing ability, that we're not to put our hope in those things. What we need is someone to keep the law for us. We need another priest. We need another judge. We need another king. All those human answers, just be good enough, just have the right leaders. They do not work. And here is the answer as we turn to the New Testament. We learn that you need a rescuer. You need a champion. You need someone who can keep the law. We need the right kind of priest, the right kind of prophet, the right kind of king. He's the one we need to make all things right. And I have good news for you. Because that Christmas message in Genesis 3, 15 has been fulfilled. Galatians 4 and verse 4 tells us that in the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, the seed of a woman, right? He sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law, So that we might become children of God. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21 tells us that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. So that we might become the righteousness of God. That Jesus came as the seed of the woman. That he lived a perfect life. That he died the death that we deserve to pay the penalty for our rebellion against the king of the universe. And then the Bible tells us that he rose from the dead. Conquering death, crushing the head of evil, triumphing over the spiritual forces of evil by the cross, Colossians 2 tells us. And in his victory over evil and death, he has now begun the process of making all things new. We talked in the Apostles' Creed about how he ascended into heaven, where he rules and reigns and has been given all authority. 
And now he looks to his church to continue his work by the job they were originally given, multiplication and dominion, filling the earth with images of God, ruling whatever area he gives us for his glory in a manner consistent with the way that he would rule and reign. And a day is coming when Christ will return and finish the job of making all things right. And I want you to know our great hope, our great surety, the, what drives us and keeps us going as we live in this world with great brokenness, what keeps us going is knowing that on that day, he will wipe every tear from our eyes, that there'll be no more mourning or crying or pain or shame or fear or blame or hate or decay or death. For the old order of things will pass away. And he will make all things new. That is our hope. That's what drives us. That's what keeps us going. That's our answer to the question, is there any hope for the things to be made right? Yes. It's because of Christmas that we have great hope that what is broken will be made new. And just as the people of God looked forward to the coming seed of the woman who would deal evil a death blow at that first advent and that first Christmas We look forward to the second advent or that second coming of the one who will finish the work of making all things new. Let's live in light of that reality. Let's celebrate God's goodness and faithfulness, looking back at what he has done, working hard now in the present with multiplication and dominion, all the while looking forward, knowing, being assured that the victory is ours, that he will one day make all things new. Let's pray and ask him to help us to do that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you. We're in awe of your creation. You are so powerful and you're so good and you're so creative. Thank you for making this world. Thank you for dignifying us by making us in your image and giving us a job to do, to rule as you would rule, to multiply your image over the face of the earth so that the knowledge of you that your glory would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Thank you for giving us that job to do. And I pray that you would give us great strength and courage to enter into great brokenness because we have an assurance that one day you will make all things new, that you will make all things right. So we can face those things today, knowing that we will see victory, we will see results, we will see all things made new When you return, Father, strengthen us. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.